Today's message begins with the reading from Scripture. So I'll invite you to open your pew Bibles and your personal uh, Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to read from John chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Now in the pew Bible, that's on page 1053, 1053. John 1, starting at verse 26. And that's where we'll begin today. John answered them, I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And then they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter or Simon and said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so there it is, John the Baptist, who was a Nazarite, by the way, he was almost certainly a member of that group of people who lived in a place called Qumran down in the Jericho Valley in the Jordan River Valley is a hot, dry place. Some of you have been able to see this place. And John was one of those folks. A Nazarite was someone who, in uh, Jewish tradition, had set before them a vow to be uh, uh, extremely devoted to the Lord so that they never cut their hair or drank wine or strong drink of any kind. They practiced an extraordinary purity of life and a single-minded, purposeful uh, devotion to God. So John says in his own words, as you just heard them, that he was called to prepare the way for the Messiah, for the Lamb of God. And that's what he was doing. And yet he also says, but I didn't know it was him. 
I think this is amazing. They're cousins, they know each other pretty well, and no doubt John has heard all the stories from his family about Jesus's miraculous birth. And so there's this idea that while they knew him to be a very special person, anointed by God, even birthed by God in a profound way, but they really didn't know what to expect from him. Even his own cousin, who was divine, uh, divinely anointed in a special way, couldn't say for sure that he understood what Jesus' purpose was or how he was going to fulfill that purpose. He just knew that Jesus was special. And so on this day when Jesus says, okay, John, I know you don't think that you should baptize me. You remember last week when we talked about that? He says, I don't think you should baptize me, but Jesus says it needs to be so because this is how God is going to fulfill God's plan of salvation. And John says, well, you know, from God's mouth to your ear and from your mouth to my hands, and he does it. He just takes Jesus' word for it that this is the right thing to do. But then in an instant, John testified himself in the passage we read today. In an instant, Jesus is coming up out of the water and the Holy Spirit is descending from above and they intersect at the point where John is standing in front of this amazing interaction between God the Father and God the Son and he hears the voice of God say, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And suddenly John gets it. He's devoted his life to this. He's devoted his entire life to seeking the clarity that he suddenly has. And that's why the next thing you hear is John the Baptist pointing at Jesus. You know, in that culture, in our culture, in most cultures around the world, it's considered rude to point at people. It's really considered rude. But there is one case where pointing is considered an acceptable behavior, and it's usually in the courtroom. And it usually occurs when you are called to point out the one who's guilty in your eyes or the one who is committed to crime, or in some cases to point out the one who's innocent. And so this is John's testimony. He points at Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a testimony. That's not a rude gesture in that moment. That's John saying, This I know to be absolutely true. That is the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's a terribly important moment. It's a declaration by someone that John, uh, that Jesus will describe later as the greatest. And yet those of us who follow him will actually be greater. He is so, he, John is one of the people that Jesus absolutely affirms and respects and honors. And he says, when John pointed at me and said, Behold the Lamb of God, you better believe it. 
This is Jesus' confirmation of John's observation, and John's observation is a confirmation of what happened because, as you know, everything about John would ultimately lead to, well, the world's destruction of John because he was never one to say anything that he wasn't sure was from the mouth of God. So, what is this Lamb of God? What does he mean when he calls him the Lamb of God? Well, scholars are in, uh, no, none of the scholars are really sure enough to say that they know exactly what he's referring to. But in general, it's pretty widely accepted that when we hear this term Lamb of God, we're hearing a direct reference to uh, Jewish history and, and the people of the Mosaic Covenant or the people under Moses who you remember in the Exodus sacrificed a lamb so that God's wrath would pass over them. You've heard me say it from the altar at many times in the past. And, and so it doesn't bear quite the in-depth uh, revelation at this point, but understand that what John is saying about Jesus is, is he's the one through his shed blood will take away the sin of the world. And it's hard to imagine right now, but, but I believe John the Baptist was astonished when he realized this. I think when he says that first time, behold the Lamb of God, he's saying it as though he can't help but say it, but he can't believe what he's saying. You know? Uh, maybe you've had a moment like that in your life. You know, it could have been a funny moment where you, you wanted to say something nice, but there wasn't anything nice to say. <laughs> and you tried not to say it, but it came out anyway. And this is exactly the same form of revelation that comes from the mouth of John the Baptist. He says, oh my gosh, I didn't know it before, but now I understand. You heard his words in the, in the testimony we just heard a minute ago. He said, I didn't know before, but I get it now. He's to die like a sacrificial lamb. This isn't gonna go the way you all thought it would go. It isn't even gonna go the way I thought it would go. And I'd say John was as likely as anyone to have it right. And he didn't see this coming. The Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. And this Lamb must die then. A sacrificial death in the Exodus and then the following uh, generations of use of sacrificial animals at the altar. The idea is always the same. You lay your sin upon this innocent creature, and then it's shed blood becomes your atonement. That is at one with God. That is the sign that you're at peace with God is the shed blood of the innocent. And Jesus, who was born in a place where lambs were born, 30 years later is pointed out clearly as the lamb of God. No wonder John was so astonished. No wonder he was just blown away by not knowing everything he thought he knew. You know, that's really the essence of salvation and conversion in Christ, you know. If you haven't really experienced conversion in your life, you're gonna have to take my word for it. There's a moment when you go, I've been wrong. <laughs> All this time I've been wrong. 
I thought I knew that I was a good person and that I was good in God's eyes and I could be sure that I was going to heaven when I die. And now I realize I'm wrong. There's no one good, not good enough to get themselves into heaven. Everyone needs an atonement sacrifice on their behalf. And Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. And it is through his broken body and shed blood that you are right with God. There is no other way. And this is the point when John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when you turn forward in your Bible to the last chapters in the last book, the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God features prominently. In fact, it is the Lamb of God who is the only one worthy to open the sealed scroll that contains God's final judgment. Only the Lamb. And as you read through the New Testament, there's been so many explanations over the years. And I've been, you know, I have an expensive education, so I've read a lot of stuff. And everybody wants to explain away the language and all of this. But I'm, I'm a literalist. I believe that the same John who wrote Revelation was there with Peter when they ran to the tomb and found Jesus' tomb empty. Oh, by the way, he, end, he ended up in a cave again. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that, but it seems like a trend in his life and his resurrection. He was born in a cave. He died and was laid in a cave, and then he was born again from the cave, resurrected as a new creation and the first of the saved dead. And so anyway, I digress. This this lamb of God in the book of Revelation is a sort of a combination of a lamb and a lion. He looks gentle. He looks mild and meek, but boy, he's not coming back like that. Already done that. It's already served its purpose. When he comes back, he's coming back with a roar. I would recommend that if you haven't watched or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this would be a good time to do so. You can convert, converse with my librarian, Bethany there, about that if you want to do the literature. But if you want to watch the movie, well, I'll bet you can stream it from a million different places on your TV. But there it is explained in a beautiful, artful way. But here's what you need to take away from it. The Lamb of God is still worthy. And it is ironic for all of us and hard for us to comprehend that when we come to the Lord, the only way of salvation is to be willing to die to ourselves in the same way Jesus was willing to die to his divinity, his glory, his majesty. He was willing to take upon himself a burden he didn't deserve, a punishment that was not for him. He did it all in your place for you because that was the way of salvation. And then the answer to how you end up saved is the same, you must die. In this case, it's not a physical death, but it's, a, it's sort of an emotional and intellectual death. It's, a, it's an acceptance. It's a changing of your frame of mind. It's, it's what some scholars call paradigm shift. 
You always saw things one way and suddenly you can't help but see them in a new way. You're looking at things from an entirely different perspective and it changes everything. And so, when you see Jesus, remember this, he is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world, even your sin and mine. And I'll challenge you, honestly, how can you not love a God who created you and then witnessed your rebellion against him and then protected you and provided for you even while you wandered outside of his kingdom? How can you not love the God who offered his only son to settle your sin debt with his own life? How can you not love the son who willingly gave up his glory in heaven to leave his kingdom home for love of the father? That father who wanted desperately to save you. How can you not love the son who is the lamb of God? My purpose from the beginning of the year and till I find another reason or another place to go is to help you fall in love with Jesus. People go to church for all kinds of reasons and we've learned through our various ordeals over the last couple of years a lot about why we go to church, why we stop going to church, why there's people that we've never seen before here today and people we used to see all the time who aren't here anymore and we've thought about all of that but here's the only thing that matters. If you came here because you can't help but love Jesus Christ and you want to join other people who love him too in worshiping him, then you're here for the right reason. And if I'm preaching with all my heart and soul up here because I'm crazy about Jesus, then I'm doing it for the right reason. And I'll tell you something. I'm pretty sure about another thing. I told you that I was sure that God inhabits praise and that he loves to hear you sing, but I can tell you something else I'm sure of. He wants you to express your love for him to and through each other. He's filled you with the Holy Spirit to make you his body on earth and therefore in you I see him. In me you see him. And the stranger, they have their chance to meet Jesus when you come in his name. And so here's the thing that has to be priority number one as we move forward into the coming decades as a family of faith that fought its way through the wilderness to take hold of the promise of God. We have to love Jesus so much that we want him to dwell in us and then to be seen in us so that people who don't know Jesus will get acquainted with him through us and learn to love him as much as we do. There's the mission. We say being disciples and seeking disciples, but that, that's really what it means. So let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word, and I pray that what is truly from you is burned upon our hearts forever, and the rest would come from your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.